This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser. We are here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance and the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Harvard University, uh, their endowment, mm, the returns may lag the Ivy League average, but Wall Street's elite making the school a fundraising powerhouse, giving it a bit of a helping hand. Here to tell us about the most read story on the Bloomberg in the past eight hours, this is what Wall Street is reading today, everybody. Michael McDonald, he's endowments reporter at Bloomberg News. He joins us in our Bloomberg 1061 studio in Boston. Um, Kudos. Interesting story. Tell us, uh, Michael, what's going on. Well, uh, Harvard University is raising a lot of money, and I, I don't know if those the, the Wall Street readers are giving writing bigger checks now or putting their <laughs> checkbook away. Well, wait, Harvard the, the Harvard endowment. When we think about the big endowments, the revered endowments, Harvard is one of them, right? Harvard's the biggest, thirty-seven point one billion dollars. Yep. Okay, so what's going on? Because a lot of people give them money, but what's different about is what's different about what you write about? Uh, Sure. Well, basically, the story is about how Harvard has had this incredibly successful fundraising campaign to the point where the biggest donation was actually originally offered to the Harvard Business School. Mm -hmm. But because the Harvard Business School is already so well endowed and had already met their their quota or their their goal um, and actually suggested, you know, why don't you give it to the engineering school? So it sort of showed just how. Uh, how big these uh, these donations were that were coming in and how important uh, the Wall Street billionaire type uh, investor was in uh, in helping to propel this campaign and drive it to this incredible level. It's more than nine billion dollars. And they've got a, wow. what, a couple of weeks, I don't know, five Jeez. days until it's over. <laughs> Maybe you know, they'll announce more. I have to say, before I dug into business news, I was doing some endowment work uh, up at Columbia Business School. And, and what's interesting is I never thought that like you have a big university, I always thought that each of the divisions were kind of competitive with one another, especially when it came to fundraising. So I found that aspect of the story interesting as well for the Harvard Business School to say, we're good. We hit our quota. So let's let's give it to another division. Sure. I thought it was pretty amazing. Yeah, it says a lot about the dean of the Harvard Business School. Yes. Uh, you know, an important point here is that the engineering school is being relocated across the Charles River mm-hmm. next to the business school. So, you know, he's it, it, in some ways this is in his self-interest. He wants to see right. the Alston expansion to be a success. But it also says a lot about the role that he played, the dean, in, in the fundraising because – you can imagine um, they basically run out of buildings to rename on the Harvard Business School campus <laughs> because there's so much money coming in. Um, you well, know, to, it to, also to spre- fund things. it spreads the money around, and it also makes sure that you know how how sad it would be to have like you know the business school, let's say you know covered in gold, and then you've got like some other rickety building, you know, within the university. You know, you want it all to kind of do well. Right. And this campaign succeeded in that. Everybody met their goal. Yeah. Um, they're, they're up over $9 million. There could still be more announcements. You know, I, I think one of the important takes, takeaways from the story is that what this campaign did in terms of revenue, bringing mm-hmm. re- revenue in for yeah. operations, right? right. Um, so, you know, every year they're, they're pulling in donations that go right to the bottom line to help to pay for things, but also money that was flowing into the endowment 
additional money that flows into the endowment that gets reinvested as mm-hmm. a result of this campaign. And that it does, it raises an important question for, you know, the, the incoming president. There's a transition going on here. There's a new president coming in replacing Drew Faust is, you know, how does he keep up the, how right. does he keep that spigot open and keep that money coming in? Another important element of your story is the idea of that you have less alumni actually making donations that a lot of what's coming in is on a few really massive size gifts. Yeah, no, that is it's it's important to note because I, I don't think if you go back years you'll you'll have anybody dispute the idea that big donors have always been important. But I think clearly as this show as the story shows, they become even that much more important. Richer getting richer, mm-hmm. ultra high net worth, et cetera. These big donors, these huge mega donors, are driving campaigns. And that's you know helping the the wealthier schools. Obviously, they're they're leading the charge. They're they're collecting just incredible amounts of money. Yeah, it's interesting too. You mentioned uh, one alum of Harvard uh, back in uh, I think class of nineteen sixty nine. He's a lawyer in Portland, Oregon, and Jonathan Hoffman, I think is his name. And you mm-hmm. you talk about how he gave a lot of money. He said a decade ago, but now he's what given a hundred dollars or something a year. Yeah, he's nothing. Yeah, a hundred dollars. Yeah. He cut it down to a hundred, and then it, now he's given nothing. And I think that that reflects sort of I you know the discomfort that some people have. You know, clearly there's been an issue with the endowment, with the kinds of, you know, we we had a great story earlier this year that, you know, the endowment paid the head of real estate $23 million. I mean, here's an endowment that's yeah. struggling and suffering, and they're, they're still, I know it's changing, but they're still paying out, you know, big, big uh, paychecks. And there are people out there who are very uncomfortable with that and are standing on principle and saying, I, I'm just not going to give for the moment. Do you know offhand, just quickly, about 20 seconds, are other universities, major universities, finding the same thing, that they're just relying? on a few a few big donors basically yeah, that's the trend the trend is yeah. lower participation among alumni big big mega gifts really driving these campaigns 37.1 billion dollar endowment it's amazing um great story michael and as i mentioned it is the most read story on the bloomberg on this tuesday really appreciate uh, you talking to us about it michael mcdonald is endowments reporter at bloomberg news joining us from our bloomberg 1061 studio in boston you can check out more of his stories just go to at business on twitter or check out bloomberg.com uh, online dow jones industrial average just up about four tenths of a percent up a half a percent on the S&P and the NASDAQ up two-thirds of one percent. This is Bloomberg Radio. Want to live in regal splendor with that love and legal? Then they give me money, 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 money. So I want to talk about money, but I'm afraid our next guest is preoccupied with the World Cup. <laughs> Looking at the monitors, as many are at this time. Um, John Augustine is back with us, Chief Investment Officer at Huntington Private Bank. They've got roughly $18.4 billion in assets under management. Based in Columbus, Ohio, in our New York studio. I know. I, I want to see the productivity numbers, like after the World Cup. They're going to go down in Europe pretty soon. <laughs> make for an interesting election this weekend in Mexico, too. Are you watching all of that? What are you watching right now? Do you watch things like that, the, the, the elections? Well, and so after on? we watch Bloomberg. <laughs> you better say that. No, but seriously. Like, what are the big macro events, especially in an environment, um, John, where there's such – there's so much news flow. There's lots of stuff. Um, coming down, some serious issues, some not, some that go back and forth. What is it? What's most important? You said you start watching Bloomberg at four thirty in the morning. What do yeah. you you want to turn on and you want to know what? Well, it's, the, the world goes around, so you want to see what goes on in Asia, Europe, what's coming at us in the U.S. in the morning. Then, secondly, day to day economic reports, the one that caught our attention today, consumer confidence. It was right. a little bit better than expected. You saw the market jump a little bit when that number came out. That's one of the things we're worried about that tariffs are going to eventually affect is confidence 
and then potentially CapEx. But so sentiment did ease in June a little bit. People are worried a little bit about um, income growth, a little bit less optimistic about the economy. I'm not saying things are falling apart. No, but, it, but I think 128 bit. was still a good number Yeah, for that this morning. So it, it's day to day, but you do want to get an early start to know what's coming at you in the morning. Yeah, exactly. This market environment, it's a funny one. Um, I don't know. Does it remind you of something else, another era? Or this can much we not... rotation, this much headlines, that it's hard to see. Perhaps in the early 80s, I didn't come in this business till the middle 80s, yeah. but perhaps in the early 80s it could have been. Uh, this market, though, we see a lot of rotation in stocks. We see range bound in bonds now. That's kind of the way we see the summer set up. I took some notes because there's a lot of things that you guys like at this point, but you do like big tech. And I do, I know I was making a, a little bit of a joke with uh, our Doug Krisner, but it was funny yesterday where everybody was like, oh my God, the NASDAQ, you know, <laughs> underperformer on a percentage basis. And it was significant selling. I'm not trying to blow it off, but. Here we are up again, and Netflix right. is back above $400. Um, how do you view the tech sector? And I know that's a very broad ask because right. there's lots of different players in tech. Four different groups in itself in tech, we yes. would say. So what our equity team's looking at, number one, some of their major holdings, though, you wouldn't think of. So the ADPs, so mm-hmm. to speak, Visa, yeah. so to speak. So Second person in two days who like are, Visa. Are not the, the techs you would think of. Yeah, there's the other ones there. Um, yeah, there's the Facebooks there. Yeah, there's the other high flyers that are in there. But we also have some, let's say, old line names in tech, which still keeps us in there because they're good business models and they're profitable. Like? Well, that's the Visas. That's the ADPs. That goes back to Microsoft, which has done real well this year, almost yeah. stealthily done this well. So it's old line names as well as FANG names also. Yeah, it's interesting. Microsoft up about 16%. Visa, you know, we've been talking about that a lot. And folks saying that's almost 17% um, up higher in uh, 2018. But that whole idea that it doesn't matter whether blockchain comes in because Visa might use blockchain, you know, in the future in terms of transactions. But if you're buying online or something, somebody's got to process those transactions, right? Right. And it doesn't matter. Um, You also like consumer discretionary. Talk to us a little bit about that. So consumer discretionary, you know, they say it wouldn't be anywhere without the fangs this year, and that's true. Netflix up 100%, Amazon up 50%. But there's also some other names in there. TJX Stores is Mm -hmm. up nicely this year. Um, There are some other names that our equity team is using there. We know it's dominated by the fangs, just Mm -hmm. like materials is dominated by Dow DuPont now. Right. But in general, it's a place we want to be, and there's one other reason we want to be there. Why? Currently, it's the only sector with accelerating earnings growth projected 2018 to 2019. Consumer discretionary. Consumer discretionary. That's interesting. Our equity team brought that up about a week and a half ago. What? What's why? What's underpinning that? Retailers in auto and auto-related. Interesting. That they rebound next year. And that's on the expectation, too, that consumers are going to have jobs, they're going to have money to spend. that's on that expectation. And lower tax rates. And then we'll see what the inflation rate does to all that, because the headlines are pretty inflationary coming at us. Um, I call this a strategy session with you, because I do feel like it's like, uh, that's exactly what it is. Um, just got about 30 seconds left here. Um, industrials, I know you like. What do you think of the moves by GE right now? Well, GE, that's good. We we just want to know, like everybody else, what's this company going to look like at the end? Looks like it's going like, to look like an aircraft engine and gas turbine company. 
much different than it did at the past. Market likes that today. Going to be a much different company from the past. That'll take some getting used to. Too early to buy into it? Got to wait and see what's going to happen? We would say, obviously, there were good balance sheet moves today, but too early to buy into the earnings story coming behind it. Because you're so fast, 10 seconds. Do you at all talk about recession back home? Not yet. Our economist has 2.8 this year, 2.7 next year. Not yet. Maybe 2020 we start talking about it. All right. Good stuff. Thank you so much. Thank you. John Augustine. He's Chief Investment Officer at Huntington Private Bank. $18.4 billion in assets under management in our New York studio. Oh, me and my bike on the streets or on the pike. Start a run. All right, folks, we are talking about bikes. We're talking about hogs. Harley Davidson's President Trump accusing Harley Davidson of using his trade war with the European Union as an excuse to move production overseas. This is fascinating, this story uh, that has kind of evolved over the last uh, today and yesterday, really. Let's get into this with Craig Trudell, U.S. Autos team leader at Bloomberg News, with us from our Detroit bureau, along with James Hardiman, managing director and leisure analyst at Wedge Bush Securities. He joins us on the phone uh, from New York. Craig, let's kick it off with you. So Hogg says yesterday, folks, we think we're going to move some production uh, out of America, overseas. Um, And then Donald Trump, President Trump, tweets about it today. Yeah, and it's... It's complicated is a short way of summing up uh, what's <laughs> Everything is. Then, right? <laughs> so what, what you have here is a situation where uh, a company is facing some tariffs and some barriers to some key markets. Um, they already have, have had this situation for, uh, for Europe, uh, although it's you know, less uh, prohibitive in Europe than it is in Southeast Asia, which is, is really an emergent market for, for motorcycles. So you have a situation where Harley is, is trying to uh, to, to set up some production in some overseas markets because of the trade barriers that Trump, uh, you know, rails against uh, so often. Uh, that's all fine and good. But what, what President Trump is confusing here is this idea that that Harley uh, is closing down production in the U.S. and doing so because it's setting up production overseas, and that is incorrect. So uh, the, the company happens to be shutting down some production in uh, Kansas City, Missouri, mm-hmm. uh, but that's because it has too much uh, production capacity and sales have been declining here in the U.S. So you have the, the president attacking the company, uh, but not necessarily capturing the, the reality of the situation in, in his attack. Right, not connecting all the dots maybe accurately. James Hardiman, come on in on this story. Um, would Harley have done this if we weren't in this kind of trade tit-for-tat right now? Oh, absolutely not. Um, I think Harley is, has for a long time uh, been boxed in. Um, you know, they, they've been hesitant uh, to, to move any production overseas like most multinational companies would have already done. Uh, because, you know, as we were seeing over the last two days, um, that's not something that, that could be done quietly. So mm-hmm. whenever Harley uh, opens production anywhere outside of the, the U.S., or in the U.S. for that matter, it's going to make headlines. And it's going to make, if, it, if it's outside of the U.S., it's going to make, obviously, their employees here angry. It's going to make a lot of their customers angry. Uh, and so I think in the absence of what's going on with this trade dispute, um, I, I think um, – you know, a lot of the, the lost jobs in Kansas City would have been moved to York, Pennsylvania. Now it looks like some of those jobs are probably going to uh, go on moving east uh, towards uh, either India or, or Thailand. Um, it is important to, to note, though, uh, that one of the other tweets that, that Trump pointed out or that, that Trump made 
that um, must know that they won't be able to sell back into the U.S. without paying a big tax. I think that's another just factual inaccuracy that the plan is not to make any of the motorcycles sold here uh, anywhere else. The plan is to uh, find alternative production for, for bikes made in Europe. Uh, than than what was currently made in the United States. Right, right. And we do see companies, I mean, Craig, the auto industry in particular, right, we see a lot of production in the markets that they sell into because it's expensive moving stuff around. Absolutely. And and Exhibit A being Daimler last week, right? right. So they, they took their, their profit forecast down for this year uh, because of Trump's uh, trade war with China. They make a significant uh, number of, of sport utility vehicles down in, in the south. And uh, one of the biggest uh, destination destinations for those uh, SUVs happens to be China. And uh, there are, of course, uh, some other factors uh, at play with Daimler. And so there was some sort of skepticism that uh, that was the full story for why they took their profit forecast down uh, last week. But it's definitely part of the story. Right. And so, so when you do sort of uh, change the, the rules of how trade is going to work, it has major implications for these companies that, you know, generally the rule of thumb is you want to make where you sell. But but we do have this situation where, uh, you know, where, where the companies have set up their production, uh, you know, footprints uh, with the, the rules that have applied, you know, for, for decades. And let's be fair. I believe in transparency. I mean, James, there's a lot going on at Harley. I mean, stock's down about 18 and a half percent. We've been talking about this story for a while that they're, you know, maybe having a tougher time hitting a younger generation. Oh, I don't think there's any doubt. It's it's no secret no. that a disproportionate number of their customers are, um, let's say, older American <laughs> white males, right? right? And so it's always been a, it's been a a challenge, uh, certainly uh, at the front of the minds of investors, uh, that uh, they need to be able to to trade uh, uh, people from the baby boomer generation for people in the millennial generation. Um, which is, you know, easier said than done, obviously. Yeah, exactly. Craig, what is the Harley market, though, outside the United States? Is it a different thing? Is it seen as kind of a cool American brand and people want to own it just because just because of that? Well, I do think actually part of the reason that you've seen Harley struggle is they are incredibly, incredibly reliant on this U.S. market. Mm-hmm. Uh, as much as there is demand, some demand in, in Southeast Asia because of the, the popularity of motorcycles, uh, generally – they're also, you know, bigger bikes, and so they don't necessarily compete in the same classes that that you would see, like Honda or Yamaha have, you know, some of these, uh, you know, cheaper, uh, more fuel efficient uh, bikes that maybe are popular in some of these other markets. It's a lot like uh, the car industry, where you in America you have uh, a huge popularity of of great big pickup trucks and SUVs that just aren't popular in places like Europe and, and Asia. So uh, that. that that has been difficult uh, for them to, to square as well. And I know we discussed this yesterday with uh, some of our Bloomberg team. Um, but James, just quickly about uh, twenty seconds. I mean, aren't there? Can they? Will the union allow them to move jobs? Uh, that, yeah, that's a completely different question. I, I, uh, not if they can help it is the quick answer. But yeah. I do think the timing actually benefits them because they were already shutting down this Kansas City plant right. and jobs that would have shown up in York. Right. That probably haven't been filled yet. They probably don't have to fill there and we'll probably, um, you know, move those to Thailand. All right. 
gentlemen, thank you so much. James Hardiman, Managing Director, Leisure Analyst over at Wedbush Securities, on the phone in New York. Craig Trudell, our U.S. Autos Team Leader at Bloomberg News, joining us from our bureau in Detroit. Hog shares just down about one-tenth of one percent. You're listening to Bloomberg. Go, go! Go, Johnny, go! All right, he's back for another dose. Uh, we're going to talk about from Netflix and Instagram to Tesla and the iPhone. Time to talk tech with our own John Ehrlichman, anchor of BNN Bloomberg's The Open, correspondent for CTV National News, joining us uh, from Toronto. John, good to have you here. Um, I got to tell you, I love this story. Netflix, you know, was off about six and a half percent yesterday. It's back up about five percent today. I love it when tech sells off because everybody starts running for the door and saying, "Oh my God, it's over! It's over for technology!" <laughs> and then the stock, you know, or the names begin another uh, leg up. And we've got a bull out there on Netflix talking uh, talking this name up again. It's uh, it's incredible, right? The, <laughs> it the is. momentum names, yeah. Netflix back around four hundred bucks. I mean, three years ago. Netflix shares were less than 100. So what an incredible investment that's turned out to be. And yet it feels like at every step of the way, Carol, there have been naysayers saying, oh, Netflix can't take it to the next level. You know, when we saw that sell-off yesterday, obviously you talked a lot about it on the program, the Mm -hmm. fact that um, if there was some restriction on Chinese investment in U.S. tech, and I know we'll talk a little bit more about that later, but would that impact companies like Netflix? It was an easy target to sell. And yet when you think about it, Netflix Netflix is a business which has expanded virtually everywhere on the planet except for China, just because that was always seen as one of those markets where it was going to be very difficult for them to operate in, uh, whether it's privacy issues or just what they would have to do to be successful in that market. So China was always low on the Netflix expansion list, and I think that's what happened today. People kind of looked at which tech stocks got uh, creamed yesterday, and then they said, well, hold on, Netflix actually doesn't have a lot to do with the China story, And, and here we are talking about the rally again. It's looking at other emerging markets. Take India, for example, and it's also continuing to grow subscribers here in the United States. So, uh, yeah, there's there's a lot of other stuff going on. Hey, let's talk about Instagram. A $100 billion valuation? Really? Yeah, I mean, that's an amazing piece of data that's been put together by the Bloomberg Intelligence team. Uh, Just looking back at you know, what are we, six years after the uh, the, uh, the acquisition by Facebook of Instagram, mm-hmm. when a billion dollars seemed like a lot of money to pay for that business? At the time, though, Instagram had 30 million users. And, you know, obviously, at the time, Facebook needed a mobile story. They needed a mobile strategy, and Instagram represented that. They coughed up a billion dollars, and here we are now just looking at the growth of the platform. 30 million users then, a billion users now. Bloomberg's own estimates uh, suggesting maybe within the next five years they could get to 2 billion users. I mean, it's it's absolutely astonishing, and I feel like investors know this story. Snap Inc., the parent of Snapchat, goes public, and all of a sudden Facebook says, "Uh uh-uh, we're going to turn on the jets, and you see that showing up in the revenue for Instagram as well. So it's just becoming a larger piece of the overall Facebook revenue pie. And, and yeah. boy, is Facebook happy they made that move. You do wonder if it becomes the tail wagging the dog, you know, uh, over at Facebook. I, I, I don't know. It's pretty, pretty yeah. amazing. 
fact. I don't know. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know what? I, I think uh, Instagram has allowed a lot of interesting stuff to happen. I mean, mm-hmm. I think that, you know, as people want to know um, harder numbers on, on what exactly is happening on the platform, advertisers ask more questions, it'll be the same story to watch for us. The, the same same story that's playing out with Snapchat on some levels as well. Hey, you mentioned uh, the tensions, the trade tensions between the United States and China and uh, the crackdown uh, on Chinese investment in U.S. technology. Yeah. You're looking at that as well when it comes to a couple of Chinese companies, Alibaba, Baidu, Tencent. Well, I think because these companies have been equally high flyers in the world of technology. If we're going to talk about hot stocks like Netflix or Amazon, we also have to talk about names like Alibaba, which have had huge runs. And, you know, there's this term that they use um, outside of the FANG stocks, which we all seem to know, Facebook and Amazon, Netflix, Google. There's the bat names, Baidu, (laughs) Alibaba, and Tencent. And Tencent and Alibaba have both invested heavily in the U.S. over the last few years. They've invested in Uber and Tesla and Snapchat and Riot Games and Magic Leap and Lyft. Uh, And I was looking at the Bloomberg data. Those two companies have been involved in either acquisitions or investments of 295 companies over the last five years worth about $150 billion. So that's when it starts to make sense. All of a sudden, if you're going to see Chinese tech investment slowing down into the U.S., and, and, and obviously we're not necessarily there right now, I think that was one of the undertones that the market sell-off uh, signified yesterday when China's making massive investments in AI and gaming and retail and banking and autos, and all of a sudden that math equation changes. I think that ultimately it does change for those tech companies that were getting investments out of China. Can you be quick? 25 seconds. Goldman on Tesla? Goldman's been bearish. You know that. And uh, yes. they don't think they can deliver on Model 3. But as you mentioned in your newscast there, Elon's tweeting about uh, Tesla trucks. So the stock's up on the news. It's up 2.4% today. You know, uh, up about 9 almost 10% this year. Yeah. Go figure. Another person that many would say don't bet against. Uh, John Erlkman, I would never bet against you. Great stuff. Great to uh, run down the tech group. John Erlkman, anchor at BNN Bloomberg's The Open, correspondent of CTV National News, joining us uh, from Toronto. You are listening to Bloomberg Markets. I'm Carol Masser, and this is Bloomberg Radio. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. Nine minutes to go in today's trading session. We are indeed driving to the close. Lori Heinel is back with us, Deputy Global Chief Investment Officer at State Street Global Advisors. Lori joining us, of course, uh, on the phone from Boston. Hey, nice to have you here. A uh, little bit of a different tone in the markets today. Um, yes. I don't know. <laughs> but, you know, tomorrow's another day. Uh, exactly. uh, you sit down with uh, investors, institutional clients. Um, what do they want to know, Lori? 
Look, they want to know where this is going to head, right? So in the moment, we've seen a lot of rhetoric. There have been uh, obviously some moves, some tariffs will go into effect on July 6th against China, for example. Uh, but there's still a lot of optimism about the fundamentals. I mean, the U.S. is still clicking on all cylinders. The, the tax reform has kicked in in a big way, so they don't want to miss out. So they're really trying to understand how to think about the trade-offs, you know, what could go wrong and how do they protect against that. Yeah, well, good luck with that. Indeed, indeed. Um, Let me just go right to the R word, recession. Um, Are you seeing any signs of it in discussions, um, concerns, things starting to come undone? You know, we're not. At this stage, if anything, we're still seeing increasing momentum here in the U.S. Now, there are some notable places, like in the Eurozone, where things have slowed down quite a bit, and a lot of that's related to a lot of the geopolitical tensions that you've had there in places like Italy and whatnot. Um, so we think that Europe is a, an area that's uh, you know going to flirt with slower growth, mm-hmm. uh, but we still think global growth is going to be at a, you know just shy of 4% this year, which would be the highest in, in some time. Isn't it in some odd way, Lori, and I've been having this conversation with very various guests on and off air, that these trade tensions, to some extent, are maybe giving global central banks a little bit of a break that they maybe don't have to be so aggressive in terms of, you know, raising rates. And that as a result, that's going to provide kind of a sweet little spot for the financial markets, isn't it? It's kind of odd. Well, it is. And look, we've seen this story play out in a variety of ways the last couple of years, where we know that policymakers have wanted to tighten, but they also wanted to be very judicious. And frankly, against a backdrop with no inflation, there hasn't been anything forcing their hands. So obviously, you know, the Fed is in a bit of a tightening mode, but even the Fed has been moving very, very cautiously, being very data dependent, signaling its intentions pretty transparently. Um, So I don't know that they necessarily needed uh, that kind of cover to act cautiously, but you're right. When you have this um, this kind of disruptive potential, that will let them give the fade to being more cautious. Yeah, it's just fascinating to kind of watch the market moves. I mean, we've, we've certainly calmed down in terms of volatility, despite some of the moves that we saw or the move that we saw yesterday. But if you look at the S and P and the swings that we are seeing, mm-hmm. um, they've definitely come down. They've definitely uh, been reduced. But I do feel like the market is very, you know, dare I say, an efficient market place that the market reacts. Very very quickly to things and then starts to either look at the fundamentals again and, you know, right. says, okay, well, yeah. here's what, yeah. what the real story is. It's fascinating. Um, well, yeah. yeah, go ahead. Yeah, no, and, everybody, and everybody knows that, or everybody thinks that we're late stage, right? And there are lots of reasons to suggest that this um, recovery could extend yet for another couple of years. But against the backdrop that's likely later stage, people are going to be more trigger happy, right? When they see something that could go wrong, they want to they lock in those gains. Yeah, exactly. All right. Uh, ba, 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 ba. So what do we do? All right. Where would you commit new money? Where would you commit new money right now, Lori? Yeah. Yeah. So we're actually being pretty um, tactical in the sense that on the pullbacks, we're actually looking for companies that are caught up in the in the downdraft, right? So if you look at emerging markets, for example, which has been uh, under uh, under um, a lot of siege lately, uh, looking for those opportunities where uh, we think there's still good value, and that the um, you know the countries have been um, you know they've been drawn down in sympathy with the broader market. Um, so you know we still like China, believe it or not. We still like India. Uh, 
Um, we are also looking at places where there's a good kind of trading opportunity. Look at high yield, where we were uh, underweighting earlier in the year, and then we've been adding back to positions opportunistically as we saw spreads widen. Um, we've also been looking at U.S. large caps. We think there's still a great story there, and uh, we've been taking money out of Europe where we think that there is a lot of geopolitical risk. But you're not worried about those big, um, big caps, U.S. big caps that might have some exposure overseas with all the trade stuff? Well, again, there are lots of large caps that aren't so exposed. So think about financials, for example, yeah. which is an area of the market that we've been quite constructive on. And we also think that, you know, these are companies that have dominant global positions. And in many cases, their exposure to China, particularly in the tech sector, is not that large. Yeah. Interesting. All right. Cool. Thanks, Lori. Appreciate it. Lori Heinel, Deputy Global Chief Investment Officer at State Street Global Advisors, uh, joining us on the phone from Boston. Folks, we're just a few minutes away from that closing bell. We've got equity averages. We're in the green, but we're definitely off our best levels of the session. We'll break down those closing numbers for you in just a moment and take a look at some of the stocks on the move in the Tuesday trade. You are listening to Bloomberg Radio. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to the radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. 